0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bikini Podcast. This is episode number 36 and today we're with Emily Zilik, IFBB Pro League judge and former figure competitor and now mother. Emily, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Troy. Thanks for having me.
0: So before commencing your journey towards family, you were an IFBB figure competitor and champion. So can you tell us what attracted you to bodybuilding to begin with?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm not going to lie and tell you that bodybuilding was always a dream of mine as a child. And I don't think many people can honestly say that. You know, As a five-year-old, we don't wake up mum and dad and say, hey, can you take me to the gym so I can hang out with my friends and do some weight training? Um, but I was always an athlete. And in our family, we were always encouraged to participate in sport, no matter what that was or what that looked like. And for me, that was athletics, it was soccer, it was netball. And later on in life, it was marathon running and also triathlons as i um, progressed in my career and as that took up more of my time i needed to find an outlet that i could you know continue with a strict training routine but wasn't going to take up as much time as what my previous sports had taken up and weight training you know fit really well into my current um, work commitments or work commitments at that particular time there was no intention initially to to enter into a competition. I fell in love very quickly with um, weight training because of the immediate results that I was seeing and the learnings associated with the sport, learnings around training, learnings about, around nutrition and this incredible sense of you know, community and camaraderie um, at the local gym. And as I then started to engross myself into the sport of bodybuilding, the camaraderie of, with a lot of the female athletes as well so i can't say you know to recap i wasn't attracted to bodybuilding from a very young age it was something that i did start on off later on in life and i knew that it would always have a time frame for me i was 30 when i did my first competition and you know i was 34 when i did my last one and there were many shows between the first and the last all of them very memorable and all of them very enjoyable Um, but overall the weight training associated with the sport of bodybuilding And the empowerment that it gave me is what I fell in love with and what I still really appreciate about the sport.
0: So you spoke about, you know, you started competing when you're 30. That's quite a late starter for most people. What what was the, because you went from weight training to, okay, hold on a second. I think I might consider competing. Was there someone that influenced you or what were you inspired by?
1: There was so I um I saw results really quickly. I had a personal trainer at my local gym. It wasn't by all means a a bodybuilding gym. It was one of the mainstream gyms, and that particular gym had a fitness um, center manager who was also a Les Mills instructor. And for those of uh, those listeners who know Les Mills really well, and in particular Body Pump, will know Mr. Body Pump Matt Thruxton, um, who suggested to me to really ramp up my training because he could, He thought that I had potential to do well um, competing. So I looked into it a little bit more and for those who know me quite well would know that I love researching and I love investigating and I love facts and data and so forth. And the more I looked into it, the more I realised that it was something that I really think, think I would enjoy doing and um, entered my first competition as a bikini competitor and most listeners probably don't know that, but my first ever show was as an IFBB bikini competitor in 2013. And although I look back now and wish, sorry, I should say now that I look back and at the start of this journey, I used to wish that I'd start, started earlier on in life, that I started competing in my 20s, um, I realised that there is a, a need for emotional maturity and psychological maturity that comes with the sport. And I think that was one of my advantages amongst other competitors. And we can go into a little bit more detail later on. So yeah, I had a a great um, introduction to the sport through Matt, um, who was a wonderful mentor as well. And then I was able to meet people the likes of Rach White, who I met backstage and eight years later, uh, we're best of friends who have an incredible physique but also a very sustainable approach to the sport of bodybuilding.
0: Yeah. And for the listeners that may, may not know, so Rach White's been around the industry for a very long time. We're talking WBFF figure world champion and now an IFBB physique pro. And, what you yeah. term and pro? for a
1: lot of listeners, yeah, physique pro, yeah, was into um, yeah. physique Last pro year? card yeah, at yeah. the Arnold's. And what people, a lot of people don't know about Rach, is that Rach has been training for 20 years she took ten years, almost ten years, before she would do her first ever show, and it would be eight years after that show where she would earn her IFBB Pro card. So there's no shortcuts, absolutely no shortcuts. There's a lot of hard work there, and that's why I really, um, that's why she was a huge inspiration. It still is a huge inspiration for me today because she demonstrates what sustainability and longevity in the sport actually looks like.
0: So, I mean, that's a really good take home point. So Rachel White took 10 years to get a pro card. And I think, I suppose bikini is probably a little bit different from physique and perhaps figure, but it's a lot of these ladies, you know, first time competitors looking to compete and thinking they can get a pro card in two years. It might be possible, but I think that's probably the wrong attitude to have. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Look, I think that um, going back to my earlier point around the introduction of the sport of bodybuilding and in particular introduction to many females, it's not something that we grow up doing, we are introduced to it later on in life. And uh, you know, there's the odd occasion where um, a female might have a brother or a dad who does a little bit of weight training at home or at the gym, so they might be exposed to it. But for the majority of females, they might start weight training, you know, at the earliest in their late teens, early 20s. And they want, you know, immediate results it's something you really can't get immediate results in unless you really want to start taking some aggressive protocols. And that's where it can get a little bit dangerous. We can have a chat a little bit in greater detail on this a bit later on. So I think if, it, you know, if you've identified a passion in the sport of bodybuilding, you need to understand that you need to give yourself time. You need to give yourself time to develop not only physically and develop your muscle maturity, but also develop the emotional intelligence that you need for this sport as well. You need to be in the right place to commence a competition prep. Um, and that means things like financially too. People really underestimate the cost associated with bodybuilding. Regardless of whether or not you're sponsored, when you set out to do a competition prep, I always encourage competitors to, you know, write down a list of what the expenses are going to be you know, in one column what are your day-to-day living expenses, the non-negotiables, the things that have to be paid in order for you to live and survive? And then what are the expenses going to be associated with bodybuilding? And if you don't have the money to go ahead and do that competition, prep, don't do it. Wait till the following season. It's always, the opportunities are always going to be there. But if you undertake something like bodybuilding, without having all the boxes tick, all you're going to do is apply unnecessary pressure, which can have some really severe consequences to your overall performance and to your overall competition preparation.
0: Yeah. I mean, contest preparation, just from a contest prep coach point of view, that's, that's money there. Then you've got your food, then you've got your supplements, you've got your posing lessons, you've got bikini. And then if you're going to do multiple shows, which more often than not, people are going to do a state qualifying show. They can do nationals. And then they're like, hold on a second. I did, I need, I did a pink bikini for my qualifying show. I need blue for nationals. And that's possibly an extra six or $800 on top of that. And then that's not including their general living expenses.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's a significant cost and even more so, you know, for females where presentation is absolutely key um, on stage. Mm. If you, spend so much time on transforming your physique on dieting on training and you see time and time again people who really let themselves down when it comes to posing and presentation to be realistic with yourself up front work out the costs associated with the with the competition preps that you want to do and you know tell yourself that it's okay you know i can't do it this season let me save and i'll aim to do it the following season or the following year yeah. the opportunity will always be there just don't don't commit yourself to a situation where all you're going to do is stress yourself out and in the final weeks set up a gofundme account because you mm-hmm. run out of protein for the final weeks of your competition program
0: so i want to set up a gofundme account if i did that would you donate
1: <laughs> you know my thoughts and go GoFundMe, gofundme accounts i'm a, a not-for-profit and social enterprise specialist and i think that GoFundMe accounts should only be used for purposes where we're raising funds for worthy causes, not to support someone's competition forever. I,
0: I absolutely agree. with um, You touched on you know, being in the right place mentally. How would you make the decision? Or could you maybe give the audience some tips on you know, what yeah, it feels look, like to be in the right frame of mind?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess a good place for me to start there is, to compare my 2015 season to my 2016 season. Yeah. So in 2015, um, I had a very long competition prep. I started in March um, for an October show and then that would flow on through to the end of November for the Amateur Olympia. I had teamed up and was working with Andy Bell, who I'd selected to be my, my coach. And to this day, still provides me with um, a number of different nutrition plans. I was in a really good place. I had a a positive attitude. Work was going really well for me. Um, I had clients that were happy. I had a really good family life. I was in a very financially stable position. And everything just really fell into place for me, Troy. I was training hard. I was training seven days a week, and that included weight training twice a day most days. It included cardio most days as well. But I was never tired. I was never exhausted. I was recovering well, and the body was responding. I was waking up in the morning ready to take on, you know, whatever would come my way. And I had such a healthy balance between my work life my personal life, um, and also competing. Such a healthy balance, in fact, that I was being asked by the executive team of my company to present to leadership teams around how to balance you know, competing and sport with a successful corporate career. Mm. In 2016, what I realised was I also had some personal issues that I should have been addressing. And at the start of that year, my ex-husband and I made the decision to separate and to commence with the divorce proceedings. What that meant was a lot of daily meetings and conversations with lawyers, with accountants, with real estate agents, with buyer's advocates. There was a lot of work around selling assets, selling the family home, looking for a new home to buy, moving into that home. So instead of giving myself the time to actually, you know, essentially grieve, because that's what you do through any breakup, regardless of whether or not it's amicable, mm. um, whether it's mutual, in that moment when that decision is made, you, your life changes in an instant. Everything that you've known for however long you've been in that relationship for changes. Your circle of fl- friends immediately change. And you do go through that that sense of grief and loss. So instead of giving myself the time to heal emotionally and spiritually, what did I do? I decided to do another year of competition. Mm. So I reached out to Andy, and I told him of my plans. I told him that there was a Bendigo qualifying show, and that there was Hong Kong in August. And he told me very honestly that I should not do it. He didn't think that it was the right time. He believed that I was under enough stress and pressure with what I was dealing with personally and that that should be my priority. But for those of you who know me well, I am probably the most stubborn person. And once I have my mind set on something, it's very hard to convince me otherwise. So I started this competition prep. And everything that Andy told me would happen and what he predicted was happening. I was dieting harder. I was training harder. And the results weren't showing. I was exhausted when I was getting up in the morning. I wasn't recovering as well. I'd started a new relationship and a lot of my frustration was being taken out of my partner, which was really unfair to him. And at the time, I wasn't recognising this because I was using bodybuilding as a way to escape and to essentially delay the inevitable and the inevitable was that I needed time to actually spend on myself internally instead of the time I was actually spending on myself physically and that's what we do in bodybuilding we concentrate so much on that physical transformation that for many of us who actually feel like they could be rotting inside you know just burying themselves deeper and deeper and deeper and delaying the inevitable and once they come around to actually addressing those personal issues, it's a lot harder than if they dealt with them initially. I hope that gives you a bit of a comparison as to, you know, two, two, it was only two years apart, but how different those preps were because of the state of mind I was in and also the stress that I was under.
0: Yeah. So for the people that are listening, so, so what result did you get in 2015 and what was the result in 2016?
1: So the results in two thousand and fifteen, I won the Victorian show, so the Vic Championships. So I placed third in WA, and, and, played,
0: and this is so you, you went obviously from bikini and now you're in figure at this point in time.
1: Correct. Yeah, yep. I went from IFBB bikini. Um, I then did compete with the INBA, IN, IM, INBA or ICN. As it's I think it, was, it
0: probably was INBA back then, but now it's ICN. It was
1: INBA. Yeah, IMBA, yeah. Um, you make me sound old, Troy. And it was IMBA back then, now ICN, and I did a year of figure competing with that organisation, with that federation. I got the opportunity to compete in Europe um, with the IMBA and in 2015 made the jump over to IPB figure, won the Vic show, placed third in WA, placed sixth at the Amateur Olympia. Mm. In 2016, I won the Bendigo show and placed fourth in Hong Kong. It wasn't necessarily
0: and the place. For, for, yeah, for the people that are listening, so the Hong Kong show—you're gonna say it, it's cool when you say it. It was the Arnold Classic Asia in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. That's a cooler. That's a cooler. Yeah, it, uh,
1: it was the Arnold Classic Asia <laughs> Hong Kong, and it wasn't necessarily the place. What I place that reflect my yeah. performance. I look back, and I I was so happy with what I achieved in 2015 and yes I acknowledge the fact that that's where I would see the most dramatic transformation moving from you know IMBA into IFBB and really needing to step things up in order to be competitive but it was walking away from that Hong Kong show and you and I had several discussions during that trip where I felt like my time was up I I really wanted to go out on a bang. And if it wasn't a first place, I wanted to feel like I achieved the absolute most I could have achieved in that sport. And I just didn't feel that I didn't feel I was walking away and, you know, to put it hanging up my heels with a sense of satisfaction and that I was completely happy with my prep, even though I'd invested so much time, energy and effort in, in doing so.
0: So, you know, going back to, you know, when, when you're talking about your mental state at the time, were you originally going into this and thinking, okay, I'm going to go into this competition venture quest, do the Arnold Asia because I need a distraction. I need something positive to look towards. Like what was the decision-making process?
1: That, that was absolutely it. That was absolutely the approach that I was taking, which was wrong, you know, to, to make a decision to do a competition prep because you want to escape having to deal with more important issues or to delay yourself from making those issues is not the right attitude when you're entering or starting the competition prep, you know, there's a a huge amount of stress associated with Mm. prep, just adding, adding that extra pressure or that feeling that, you know, that, that unsettled feeling doesn't help matters. It makes it a hell of a lot harder. And we know how, the body reacts when it's under stress, you know, it's difficult to manage at the best of times when you add stress into the equation that you cannot manage, and no matter how hard you diet or how hard you train or how much sleep you're getting, you're not going to get the results that you want.
0: In hindsight, what would you do differently now?
1: <laughs> in, it's, it's always easy to look back in hindsight, right? I don't regret during the Hong Kong show, um, I
0: it was a cool show.
1: It, 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 was, <laughs> it was an awesome experience. I I will cherish those memories because I had the opportunity to travel to Asia with my brother, um, mm. who I'm very close with, and who actually surprised me last minute on that trip. I got to, you know got to spend time with Tony and the leadership time, the team there. Of course, I got to spend time with you, Troy, and get lost in the streets of Hong Kong as you look for Pokemon. <laughs>
0: uh, right, hold on a second. Let's not... Hey, you just, you, didn't, you didn't throw a jab there. That was an uppercut. I wasn't playing no Pokemon. That was Ali. Were, Let's get it you were, straight. You
1: were more than happy to help Ali out. I was ready to get in the cab. It was raining. I was ready to go home. If, if, I, if I had my time again... And if I was set on doing Hong Kong, mm. I would spend a little bit more time maybe talking through my issues or how I was feeling with a psychologist or, or with my mentor or with, even with my family. And that's another thing I didn't do. I actually, I was, I almost felt a little bit embarrassed and ashamed that I was going through this process because of the disruption that it caused them. Even though I had their complete support, I felt like I needed to deal with this on my own, which I shouldn't have done. I could have been resolved a lot quicker if I just reached out and instead of, again, focusing on that physical transformation and engrossing myself in a huge commitment like bodybuilding, just took a step back, asked myself the question more often, how am I feeling and what can I do to make my feel, make myself feel a little bit better?
0: Yeah, so with your decision-making, so I want to go back to the coaching. So you mentioned Andy Bell. How did you come yep. across Andy and what was the deciding factor when selecting Andy as a coach?
1: So uh, I mentioned earlier, um, in 2014 was my last show with IMBA. And I was um, coached by a remarkable nutritionist, um, Alana Pooley from Fitment. But I knew that moving into IFBB, I needed to, to step things up if I wanted to be competitive. And I had to have that difficult conversation with Alana to say, hey, you know, we need to break up. And it really played on me, played on my mind a lot. And I picked up the phone to her one day and she could tell I was quite nervous. And she said to me, it's okay, Em, you know, you have outgrown me and I have taken you as far as I possibly can as a coach. A full testament to her wow. for recognising her ability.
0: What a boss and for coach. Being on
1: the pattern.
0: What a boss coach. That's straight oh, respect.
1: Absolutely. Recognising that she... We had a great time together, a wonderful two years. I first knocked on her door 12 days out from an IFBB bikini show after following Amanda Latona's Olympia plan on Hmm. bodybuilding.com. It it said, hey, help me. I've got 12 days left to the show. We did a number of shows together with IMBA. And here's this woman recognising that she has reached, together we've reached our potential and it was time for me now to find someone who can take me through to the next stage of my bodybuilding journey. So I I shortlisted about four or five coaches at the time and I asked for Rach White's advice as well. And the one thing that stood out um, for me when I approached Andy, and this was after his under 100 win at the Arnold's in 2015, is that he had a line of people waiting to talk to him at the ATP stand. And I went up to him and introduced myself. And he spoke to me for a good hour, not about him, but about me. And Mm. I'd asked him, you know, whether he was taking on new clients. And he committed that he would get back to me as soon as he arrived back in Sydney. And he did that. He reached out. And unlike the other coaches I had approached, who replied to my emails or returned my calls to say, hey, this is how much your prep's going to cost and we're Mm going to do it over this amount of weeks. It was a very cookie cutter reply. Andy and I had a number of conversations over a few weeks for him to get to know me because we both needed to agree that we could connect. If we were going to commit to a year long prep together, we needed to know that I was the right athlete for him and he was the right coach for me. And the fact that he took that time to get to know me to not just as an athlete, um, but, you know, what my personal interest was, what I did for a job, a little bit about my family and so forth, It showed me that this, there was a genuine care. And that was the deciding factor for me. In fact, we hadn't even discussed price at that point still. I knew I'd made my decision even before he gave me, um, you know, his price list and the package of what it was all going to all going to cost. So that was the deciding factor for me that he was uh, he was applying an approach to my competition prep that was very individualised and very customised to my goals, to you know what my body looked like now and what I wanted it to look like by the end of the year.
0: What was your vision at that point in time? You know, you mentioned wanting to look like something. Did did you have an idol in mind? Or was there someone that you aspired to look like and? The transition from, I mean, because you obviously went from bikini to figure, you got to start from somewhere, but at what point did you decide, I think I want to put on more muscle and was there a person that really got you down that road? Because I mean, you mentioned Latona, didn't you, just before?
1: Yeah, so I loved, oh, when I was a bikini competitor, um, I loved Amanda's physique and I was very lucky to bump into her in Hong Kong in the
0: elevator. I couldn't believe it when I saw her in real life. She's got a lot of muscle, hey? For He's compatible. got a
1: huge amount of muscle, huge amount of muscle. But in terms of, if I was to say who's inspired me the most in my physical transformation, that would have to be Rach White. Mm. Now, if you put two of us together side by side, we're like um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. <laughs> Rach is about five foot five. I'm five 11, but we're very similar in, in personality and She has this incredible ability to grow muscle, such a a beautifully proportioned physique. But what inspired me most about her is just how hard she worked to get that physique. Um, She has shared posts in the past of what she looked like as an 18-year-old when she started her journey compared to now. And as we've discussed, there was 10 years between the time she picked up her first set of weight to the time that she actually took the stage as a figure competitor. And then another eight years after that, before she would be awarded her IFBB Pro Z card. So when I reached out to to Rachel initially, after seeing her backstage as a bikini competitor and her as a figure competitor, and she was actually tipped to take out the Victorian Championship that year. She didn't. She actually didn't place that year. Um,
0: What year was that?
1: It was 2013.
0: Was she wearing a, that purple bikini? Was that the yeah, one? Yeah. I, I was there yeah. and I was like, I'm, now I'm sounding old. I remember things from seven years ago. And um, <laughs> I was there and I was like, what? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Look, her the feedback that she got at that time was that she really needed to step it up to physique, that the judges believed that, um, you know, she no longer suited the figure category. We now know that if, you know, I think that she was probably she had a world class physique amongst a line a lineup that wasn't world class. If you look yeah, back at the a, a world bunch
0: world. of a bunch of crumb bums is the way that I'd put it, and it's and
1: and admittedly the the federation was under very different leadership back then too. But, you know, yeah. not many pro cards were being handed out. Um, you know, you were almost penalised for looking too pro like. Um, but yeah, she would be and I'm very lucky, you know, she is one of my best friends. I was very lucky over the years to be able to, you know, train with her. I'd get in my car and drive from Ivanhoe to Caroline Springs every Saturday morning to train legs with her. She mm. trains hard. She trains exceptionally hard. So she would be the one that inspired me the most, um, even though our bodies are nothing alike having someone like her in my corner and within my circle of influence had the greatest inspiration and motivation.
0: Yeah. And I I want to touch back on the judging back then. Uh, Let's say for example, if it was rejudged today, she would probably that look back then that Rach had would get a pro card immediately because they obviously liked that. They liked that jacked look. Obviously she's in physique now, but um, a little bit smaller back then, but still very well proportioned and posed really well. I think, the first time that I seen Rachel on stage, I thought, wow, she's a beautiful woman, poses very elegantly, and holds the muscle really well. Yeah,
1: yeah you're right. She spends a lot of time and effort during her competition prep on posing. As soon as she makes the decision to um, compete, she puts in her order for a bikini. So she knows up front exactly what she's in for in terms of of cost and she commits herself by ordering that bikini because as a, as a figure competitor, you know, you're spending 1500 to three grand. Um, so she's well organized. She trains exceptionally hard. She doesn't need to do her, you know, booty shots and boob shots constantly. She's got people's attention because she has a world-class physique
0: Yes. With going back to that as well, like I want to talk about Andy and Rach White, but what would you say that you learnt most from Rach? And then what would you have learnt most from Andy, do you think?
1: What I learned most from Rach is to how important it is to keep things into perspective. You know, Rach is a, you know, comes from a country town, or a big country town, but a country town nonetheless. And, you know, she taught me that for a lot of people, for most people, bodybuilding will just be an expensive hobby. Mm. For those who turn pro, who are lucky to turn pro, and especially as a female athlete, you still have very little opportunity to make good money to live off unless you leverage your profile and then move that into being a business entrepreneur. And a great example of that is Larissa Reed. She didn't make her fortune from competing. She made her fortune from you know, developing a a profile and then leveraging that profile into the business world and creating a successful restaurant train. Mm -hmm. So Rach really taught me about balance and keeping things into perspective and to always remind myself that before being a competitor, I'm a partner, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a colleague, and that's what's most important, that those are the priorities in my life and bodybuilding needs to fit into that the other elements shouldn't fit into bodybuilding that's amazing with with andy he is one of the most intelligent people that you could sit down and have a conversation with and i'm just not talking about things related to nutrition or training and supplementation the guy's a bit of a geek (laughs) and i like geeks I like people who challenge my way of thinking. I like learning from people. He is a person that I feel very privileged to have in my circle of influence. And, you know, yes, I learned a hell of a lot in terms of, you know, how my body responds and some of the methods that we used to achieve the results that we achieved. But post bodybuilding, He's, remained, um, he's remained very close friends and he helped me with my transition into powerlifting and the plan for that. He helped me with after my diagnosis of an autoimmune disease. So he provided me with the guidance and nutrition support I needed for that. And even moving into fertility, um, he was a great support there. He was the, one of the first people I told when we first fell pregnant and Incredible. one of the first people that um, I told when we lost our first child and he was devastated for us. He was devastated because he had, he knows the struggles that we went through and only a few years before, this was just a guy who I met at the ATP stand at the Arnold's classic who could have quite easily exited me from his life after I stopped paying him coaching fees. But, you know, he's been a, a wonderful friend to have, um, and a great person to have, as I mentioned, in my circle of influence.
0: Yeah. With uh, the circle of influence, you know, how does one go about selecting people to be in that circle? What advice would you give to some of the listeners?
1: I think you need to have, I think you need to be able to recognize what are some of your personal goals and what are some of your professional goals and identifying what you do really well there and where are your development areas. Once you've decided or once you've been able to identify that is then work out, okay, who can I reach out to that can help me fill in some of these blanks or who's going to add value to my life, who is going to help me become a better version of myself and who essentially makes my world a better place to live in. So with my circle of influence, I have... A number of people from very diverse backgrounds who represent different sports but are also professionals um, and specialists in their chosen fields and that varies if I have a look in my immediate circle of influence professionally I have a number of social entrepreneurs I have a number of consultants Um, I have a few um, health professionals as well so people who I know that if I want to learn a little bit more about a topic or if I'm needing to run an idea past someone or I'm not feeling like my usual self and I need a bit of a pep talk, I can reach out to them. If you just limit it to one person, then you're not really getting a diverse opinion. You're getting, a, a you know, an opinion of one person rather than um, being challenged by, um, you know, A different approach or a different way of thinking. So, don't be afraid to reach out to people who you think may influence you and your life in a positive way. And I think that's the issue: is that people are almost a little bit too scared to reach out, whether it's picking up the phone or sending an email. Worst case, they'll come back to you and say, "I don't have the time" or "I'm not interested." But if you don't know, if you actually don't reach out, you might actually miss out an opportunity to collaborate with someone who's going to have such a powerful impact in your life, both in the
0: short term and long term. It was, it was interesting. Because that's exactly what I wrote down. Like, how do you go about finding these people? And I mean, Instagram and Facebook or social media connects people that we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do, let's say 10 years ago, especially like Instagram now, like boom, send a DM, having a conversation, sending audio recordings. So why, where, where would you start for someone that probably isn't really that confident? you're 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 a young female it doesn't matter if you have goals to compete or aspirations to do anything career-wise what would you recommend for them to sort of say hey look this is um i need some help
1: i think again it goes to my earlier point about okay recognizing what do you actually need help in you know, what are you wanting to achieve because help is such a broad topic do you want to improve on your emotional intelligence. Do you want to improve on your organizational skills? Do you want to improve on your financial literacy? Once you've identified that, you can start doing a little bit more research and you can use something as simple and powerful as, as Google where you can type in a few keywords and you have a whole list of different people that come up. I would also encourage people to start reading you know media that actually has factual information included in there
0: so all right, um, hold on. we're talking about this before so who, who would you recommend for an outlet reliable source something credible
1: oh look for me see, i love reading the financial review yeah. um i'm very interested in the brw you know, and that's a great place to start. if you look in the brw um, top 100 or the rich list it often has entrepreneurs or very successful business people who you know? There's nothing stopping you reaching out from them. You might have to go through an avenue of going through their you know media relations team or their personal assistant, the executive assistant. But the nothing. Gatekeeper. Is stopping you. The gatekeeper. Yeah, the gatekeeper. <laughs> the gatekeeper. <laughs> and I tell you a little bit of a story. When I was when I was 19, there was one particular consultant that had done an exceptional job in the area that I now specialise in, which is not for profit in the social sector. And um, I did have a gatekeeper. Her executive assistant was a gatekeeper and just constantly would not allow me to arrange for an appointment. So the last conversation I had with the assistant was that this particular person um, was not in the country and wouldn't be back until Friday. So I actually offered to pick this woman up from the airport.
0: And that's what I did. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I
1: I got in the car. I got the flight details because there was no argument there. I wasn't asking for a space in the office. I wasn't inconveniencing or taking up any more of this person's time. I was offering to actually go and pick this person up from the airport, sit in the car with them, have that conversation that I was wanting to to have with them. And I was 19 at the time. I'm 37 this year and she's still um, a, a mentor of mine. So, Sometimes you need to be bold and you need to be brave and think outside the square to get the results that you want to get. Um, But if you don't try, if you don't put in that effort and you're constantly already planning that that answer is going to be no, unfortunately life is going to be very challenging for you.
0: We don't give a fuck about gatekeepers in this bitch.
1: (laughs) No, no, we don't. You try and you try and you try and you persevere, Yeah. And no, that's something that, Uh, that was instilled in us. I'm one of five children. And one thing that dad taught us was you have to persevere and you have to be relentless. And I think all of us have a little bit of that in us.
0: Going back to, you know, bodybuilding for a second, how did you manage a successful balance between your corporate career and bodybuilding?
1: I took the approach, which many people do is that, you know, there are only a certain amount of hours that are allocated every day and everyone has those same hours. So it meant when I started my competition prep that, hey, I was going to have to get up a little bit earlier. So a typical day for me would be I would wake up at 4.30 to do my faster cardio. I would then have breakfast at 5. I would then drive to the gym and have my first weight session at quarter to 6. I would be in the shower by 6.30, work at 7.30, and then when I left work, go back to the gym and um do my second weight session and my second cardio session so they were long days but as i mentioned to you in 2015 i was never tired i was never exhausted i was in such a positive state of mind because i was seeing this physical transformation that i wanted to see and that had a really positive flow-on effect into my corporate life as well um, where I'd, i had a lot of energy and some nights it meant that I would have to stay at a corporate events and client events or attend board meetings. But I didn't care. I made no excuses. At the end of the day, bodybuilding had to fit into my existing life. My work was a priority. It will always be a priority. Where people you know fall into the trap is they try to fit everything else around bodybuilding, and I. I I recall very recently um, Tony Doherty does a really good job around Q and A's and one particular male posted a question to him around his thoughts on quitting his job to be able to do a uh, prep for a men's physique.
0: Oh, that's, that's even <laughs> funny. Oh, <laughs> out of everything, you know, you, if you're going to say super heavyweights, but quitting your prep for men's <laughs> physique. Oh, Look, wow. I think.
1: Tony was Tony was much more polite with answering that question than I would have been. Um, yeah. But you just you don't you don't do that. You do not do that. You know you have to be realistic with what bodybuilding has to offer you. And it's great in terms of um, you know getting you um, getting you on the path of your health and fitness related goals. You can, There's definitely a sense of camaraderie in the sport. Um, you can make a lot of friends. Um, but Again, for most of us, it will just be a very expensive hobby at the end of the day.
0: It's so very interesting because you mentioned before, you started in 2013, age 30. So you've obviously built yourself up financially. You've got a successful career and that's when you transitioned into the idea of competing. Many people do it in the reverse. So if anyone has, you know, probably there's a lot of people that might be struggling for money, especially during these times, COVID-19, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to someone that maybe has done the reverse moving forward, what would be the best way to go about things?
1: So in terms of supporting them, if they wanted to do a competition prep, if they feel like that, yeah. I think the question you need to ask yourself is why you can have a physical transformation. You can diet hard. You can follow a strict nutrition plan. You can follow a strict training plan and get the results you want physically without having to take the stage. So for a lot of people, when you ask the question, why do you want to compete? It has a lot to do with aesthetics and that physical transformation. But again, you can do that without competing. So what component of getting on stage is it that you want to do, that it's attracting to you? And when I've asked people that question in the past, they actually don't know what to say. They're not Mm. quite sure because they've always... They 've always replied with, "I want to look good and I want to feel good." Yeah, but you can do that without competing. So if you have your heart set on competing and you're not in financially in a position to do so, there's another season around the corner, or there's the following year.:
0: That is so very do not, important.
1: Do not dig yourself further into debt for the sake of a competition for a sport that has you know, no prize money. you'll end up with credit cards with exorbitant interest rates that you will not be able to pay off anytime soon that's only going to cause you stress and, and headaches you really need to ask yourself the question is it worth it you know and it's and it's not it really isn't be honest with yourself if you can't afford to do it this season maybe use this as an opportunity to trial different um, nutrition methods or different supplementation methods or training methods and so reassess it the following season or the following year and, you know, you've, you know you're already in a bit of an advantage because you've done a bit of a trial and error exercise, but you actually might be in a better position financially to, um, to then take on a competition prep. I would never, ever advise someone who is in a financially stable position start a prep a lot of the time they don't finish it so you've just wasted a month two months three months four months whatever it may be and actually are not going to achieve the results that you set out and that can have some psychological effects as well so wait if you can't afford to do it now just just wait it's not worth the potential risks and consequences um, if you enter into a financial commitment like bodybuilding and you're actually not in a financial position to do so
0: yeah so with uh, after you finished competing, you mentioned powerlifting and the decision to go down that road. So can you share some of you know, the things that you learned from powerlifting and um, just your overall experience in that decision?
1: Yeah. So, you know, on the back of 2016 and after the Hong Kong show, you know, I'd made the decision that, um, you know, it was, it was time for me to, to hang up the heels and um, – you know how bodybuilding was becoming a little bit of a chore for me it was becoming laborious and I was also trying to lose muscle in order to stay in the figure category because that was the feedback I was getting time and time again it was either step it up to physique or lose muscle to to stay in figure and that meant I was having to train in a way that I no longer enjoyed what powerlifting did for me was it re-sparked my love for weight training because I was able to Lift heavy, um, which I've always enjoyed, without actually having to worry about putting on too much muscle. It, you know, it gave me that sense of empowerment again that I that I'd lost. It was also a sport that wasn't subjective, and that I was able to work towards a tangible outcome. So with a competition like powerlifting, you know, you go into a competition, you deadlift the most, you squat the most, you bench press the most. Guess what? You win. Um, so, you, you know, you're working towards a goal that's no very. No surprises. You know, it's and that's what I needed at that point in time. I needed to be able to re spark my love and passion for weight training. I wanted to try something new. I felt like I um, was in a, a place where I needed a bit more excitement. And I wanted to train the way that I once loved training um, without having to worry about putting on muscle because that could potentially. Um, you know, not benefit me on stage when it came to, came to judging.
0: Yeah. With, um, your fertility and pregnancy journey, you know, so have you got any advice for some listeners that may be wanting to begin planning a family?
1: Yeah, look, I think I recently watched a really good tech talk. Um, and it was presented by, um, Meg Jay, And the title of the TED Talk is Why 30 is Not the New 20. So I I will ask listeners if they have a chance, spend some time. It's about 15 minutes. Have a listen to that. And, you know, it really does put things into perspective why, you know, we delay so many life decisions because we think that we have all this time in the world where, in fact, we don't. Now, I've been quite open and transparent with... Um, our fertility journey and my partner and I have been you know, very healthy and, and fit for all our lives um, I've always had you know regular periods even when I was competing I, I had my periods all the way through to to competition day so we just assumed that hey when we were ready to start a family that things would happen quickly um, but that wasn't the case at all uh, it would take About six months before we would be referred to a fertility specialist um, for further testing. And you know, we engaged with this fertility specialist. He was absolutely brilliant. And I was at a point where I started to blame myself for, you know, competing and putting my body through as much as what it went through whilst I was competing and potentially had damaged or you know hindered my chances of having a successful pregnancy. But he gave me a lot of confidence to say that, um, that no, that wasn't the case and that we had to you know, try a few different methods and different techniques to, to help us on our journey. And my partner and I would have three miscarriages before my fourth pregnancy. So I had four pregnancies in the space of one year, which took a hell of a lot of toll on my body as well as um, my emotional well-being too. The advice that I would give to listeners, and this is an issue that I have, uh, probably one of my biggest issues with sport, is that there is so much pressure on female athletes to take on aggressive protocols associated with performance-enhancing drugs. A lot of them that don't give themselves enough time to develop naturally as an athlete, don't give themselves enough time for muscle maturity and muscle development they go straight towards these aggressive protocols without actually knowing the short-term and long-term side effects of what they're doing they're not asking their coach questions or if they are asking their coach questions their coach really doesn't know um, or isn't disclosing some of the health risks and implications associated with taking on um, or, or choosing to take um, specific performance-enhancing drugs. And it's quite sad now stepping back and watching a lot of these young women who, you know, look like by the time they're 30 are going to be shitting out their ovaries. Yeah. Um, what I would advise these, these women is do not deny your future self of an opportunity that you don't know you even want right now. You know you are so engrossed in bodybuilding. You may not be in a committed relationship. You may think right now that you don't want children. But in years to come, when circumstances change and you might meet the right person or you actually might want to start trying for a family, how would you feel if you're told that expensive hobby that you chose to do for years on years and all those performance enhancing drugs that you chose to not use, cause I don't have an issue with the use. I have an issue with the abuse mm-hmm. has now potentially hindered the chance or made it impossible for you to conceive.
0: With your, you know, cause you mentioned before three miscarriages when you had your third yeah. miscarriage, was this something that you were thinking about? Like, wow, I put my body through so much stress. I fucked up.
1: did I I was thinking that before that Troy I was before we even felt pregnant the first time we were trying for a long time before um we were referred to a fertility specialist and you know they suggest that if you're under the age of 35 and haven't fallen pregnant within six months to seek some you know seek advice and support from a specialist so I was um you know of course I blamed myself I blamed myself for um you know all that stress that i put myself under for dieting for as hard and as long as I had and you know you you're trying to find an answer and you know I for me the obvious answer was it must be because I, I damaged myself and look I know, now know that that wasn't the case I was um I can't say that that's going to be for everyone and hence I throw out that warning just to be a little bit cautious of what you're doing and what you're taking because for females, a lot of the damage that you do reproductively is irreversible. Unlike men, you know, you can take, you know, go through a PCT and take some HCG, you know, you can fix a lot of the reproductive issues. With females, once your AMH is too low, you have no options or your only option is IVF. And that's why I stress it's just so important The decisions that you make right now, just be wary that they don't deny you of any opportunity in the future. Um, You know, we know now that my partner I know now that our miscarriages just came down to really bad luck for us. And we were supported by a, a wonderful fertility specialist who encouraged us to continue trying naturally. And after the third miscarriage, we went on a holiday but made up our mind that we would start the process of IVF when we came back because I just didn't have it in me anymore to go through it for the fourth time. Um, And, you know, on that holiday, we fell pregnant with Frankie and she's here now in 13 (laughs) months. But it was an extremely, extremely anxious pregnancy. It was, I was highly strung. I was just waiting for something bad to happen because that's what happened in the previous pregnancies.
0: Yeah, what are your thoughts on Clomid as a fertility drug, just in general, without going into too much specifics and detail?
1: Well, I look, I don't know, um, I don't know a hell of a lot about it, but I do know that it is prescribed. It's commonly prescribed with uh, for women who do suffer from polycystic ov- um, ovaries, and also to assist with the ovulation. I know that Clomid is um, one of the drugs. Overdrill is the other one to stimulate um, ovulation. So from From what I know and understand, and I won't make too many assumptions, um, Mm. it is very common practice in the fertility space to be prescribed Clomid for a number of fertility-related issues.
0: Yeah, and uh, (laughs) for the crazy people that are listening and you want to try your own, take some Clomid, uh, definitely don't do that because um, (laughs) there is some (laughs) links between taking too much Clomid and having twins and triplets and quadruplets, have you heard of that?
1: Exactly right, and that is one of the... That is one of the risks. that fertility specialists will tell you that, you know, when you do, when you have to take Clomid, that you are at higher risk of having a multiple pregnancy,
0: which is kind of scary. If it's especially if it's your first child, you don't know what to expect. Well, it so.
1: is. And actually, look, I look back now and Troy and think, well, how good would it be to get two out of the way at once? <laughs> you know, just to deal with one pregnancy. I can tell you now. I have friends that have um, twins. I have a couple that have triplets, and I'm so glad that that's not me. One's, okay. one's more than enough.
0: I can imagine. So you mentioned um, PEDs before, so porn, science, drugs. So you said that you're not necessarily against them, but you are pro smart choice or smart use. So how do you, yeah. as a bikini competitor, or as a figure competitor, physique competitor, determine what would be an intelligent decision and what would be a bad one?
1: Look, I think on the topic of performance enhancing drugs, Heads have been associated with the sport of bodybuilding for a long time, and in fact, it's prevalent in a lot of sports. But it's most commonly stereotyped with with bodybuilding. And if you are a competitor that chooses to um, compete in an untested federation, that's something that you need to accept. There's no point whining about it it is what it is there are other federations out there that are tested if that is a better fit for you i also feel that um, you know putting aside the athletes want and desire to be able to better themselves or better their performance and their physique physique there's the added pressure that we have you know as supporters of the sport as fans as spectators we expect athletes to run faster and jump higher and in our sport to be bigger, to mm. come in leaner. So that's an added pressure on athletes, especially those that have done well um, to ensure that next time they take the stage, they're even better. And that's where there's, there can be some danger associated with how far do you push the body or, or what are the limits? So my suggestion would be if you make that decision, to um to take performance enhancing drugs, number one, make sure you're getting the information from a credible source. You know, if you've just if you've jumped online and found a coach and you start asking these coach questions and you for whatever reason aren't even the slightest bit comfortable with the answers that they're giving you, that should be a sign to walk away. Because as we've mentioned, There are potential risks associated with taking performance-enhancing drugs, whether it's short-term or whether it's long-term. And as an athlete, you need to be completely aware and also accountable for the fact that you have chosen to take um, performance-enhancing drugs. There are a lot of coaches out there that are very negligent in the way that they prescribe performance-enhancing drugs, who for themselves have very limited knowledge and are not addressing some of their athletes' concerns or in a position where they have the knowledge that they can answer the questions that their athlete is asking. And that where accountability comes into play, where if you, again, don't feel comfortable with what's being prescribed to you, ask more questions Mm -hmm. or ask for an alternative way to be able to achieve those results. And it goes back to my point earlier. I think we're seeing athletes taking some pretty drastic measures to get results quickly before giving themselves ample time to be able to develop naturally as an athlete. And they need to be prepared for some potential consequences and and side effects. It's not hard to find information these days. You know, you can jump online. There's a lot of medical websites that have scientific information Um, Make sure you are reading from a credible source. Make sure you are speaking to people that do have knowledge surrounding performance-enhancing drugs. And if you are getting advice from someone who you can see has physical side effects that you don't necessarily want yourself, why would you take advice from that person? Mm. You know, if you've got a 30-year-old with a deep voice and a 5 o'clock shadow and that's something that you don't want, Why would
0: you take on that advice? I absolutely love that. I could have said it better myself. I think probably the number one thing that I see would be transparency. So a coach having the discussion an open discussion with their client and not hiding information because when people tend to restrict information, they're hiding something, they may not have the knowledge or there's some other issues that obviously could be of a concern. So ask your coach what need to ask them if they can't give the answer, probably you should dump that coach just straight up. Like
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And if, that unfortunately may mean if you've committed to them financially upfront that they might not you know, refund you the money, but what price do you pay? What price can you put on your own health? Um, and even putting health aside, you know, you need to be able to make decisions that are going to let you sleep easy at night. If it's something that's playing on your mind and you're unsure with any method or any protocol your coach is prescribing you, then you need to make some pretty difficult decisions at the very least have a confronting conversation with your coach.
0: Yeah. Femininity is very important and ensuring that you are fertile and I've seen like, I mean, we're both seen so many ladies and not just figure and physique because it's even very obvious in, in bikini ladies that do have sort of, maybe you've used certain things and have gone down that masculine side and they stick with the same coach. You have a conversation with them and it's like, well, what can you do? And what I find really interesting is, you know, friends, colleagues, family, you can see this is happening, you know, to your your sister, your daughter, your friend, whatever it is. Why aren't you having a conversation with them? Like be honest and be real. Like how much more difficult is it for that person to live the rest of their life in that fashion and that way? rather than you having a conversation. So I think it's important Absolutely. for you to have that tough conversation with that person.
1: I think, and, and that's the thing, Troy, it's obvious to people around them. It's obvious to their partner, to their family, to their friends. But for that particular individual, they're seeing that, those results that they want to see. They're so engrossed in the sport of bodybuilding. They're so committed to their competition prep. That for many of them, they're completely oblivious to what's actually happening to them. If you are having to hide the fact that you're taking performance enhancing drugs from your partner, from your husband, from your family, from your roommate, then is, does it really have a place for you in your life at this point in time?
0: I think also the people that tend to abuse it actually don't look the best. It's not just um, yeah, absolutely. And
1: again, it's not use; it's the abuse.
0: <laughs> it's it's the abuse. It's it's obviously a toxicity problem. It's a stress thing on the body. You know, can the body process it? Is it efficient? But I think it's also probably you know the the protocols that are prescribed from certain coaches or certain people in the, within the industry, their programming isn't up to scratch. Their training isn't up to scratch. So if they haven't done their research on drugs and they can't answer a specific pharmacology question they probably don't have the attention to detail that you need for posing for training nutrition. So it doesn't just, it's doesn't stop there. It it continues on to other elements of bodybuilding and competing. So do your research, ask questions with the coach. And if the coach isn't going to give you the time, like you mentioned before, you meant you met Andy at the Arnold's Australia after his 2015 win. And he, he, he beat Nathan Williamson that, uh, he
1: did. Yeah, he did.
0: So, and obviously Nathan's a a pro now. I think Andy's definitely well-deserving of a pro card. He'll get one shortly. But the point is, is that Andy gave free time. He obviously didn't really expect anything in return. could be a client opportunity, but he obviously had a discussion with you about things in detail and then followed up. So that's someone that obviously cares and wants to give value and educate. So if you can't find a coach like that, not everyone is going to be like Andy, but they need to want to be like him and have that conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is, as a coach, you do need to have your athlete's best interests in mind. You also need to follow really basic, you know, management 101 and sales 101 protocol. You you need to have those interpersonal skills. If you're committing to a client, you're committing to getting a plan out on time, deliver it on time. If you're delayed for whatever reason, that's fine. We're human. But just communicate that it's being delayed. So, you know, to the point of transparency, that flows onto so many ath- uh, aspects of that coach and, and athlete relationship.
0: What's the best part about being a mum?
1: Oh, what's the best part about being a mum? I would have to say the unconditional love um, that we share for one another. Oh. Um, there are so many small moments that um, can't be measured or explained, or memorised, or, or categorised, but every day her little hugs and kisses remind me of that love that we share, and shared well before um, I knew that she was on her way, but she, you know, well before she was even born. Um, you know, here's this little person, this little tiny person who's dependent on you, that loves you no matter what, that doesn't care what you look like, or what you're wearing, or what you say, this incredible unconditional love that's just perfect in, in every way.
0: With that, you know, have you managed your transition from a corporate role to motherhood? And if you're not working right now, are you planning to get back to work sometime soon? What's your future plans with that?
1: Yeah, look, so I am currently on maternity leave. Um, my employer allows me to take up to two years off um i recently extended i saw my 12 months through and i've recently extended that and at this stage plan to um return in october which will be interesting because i am in i'm in finance and we've just had the COVID epidemic and there's been a lot of financial implications to to many businesses both small and and large Um, but i'm also studying as well at the moment and I've had an interest in nutritional medicine for quite some time and decided that this was a good opportunity for me to finalise those studies and also um, in wellbeing and and a sports coach. So a lot on the go at the moment. Mm. Um, In terms of that transition, you know what, Troy, parenting is tough um, and adjusting to parenting takes time. And I've no doubt that I'll continue to adjust on a daily basis for some time to come. You know, initially there were challenges like sleep deprivation and breastfeeding issues and feeling guilty because I couldn't get all the tasks done during the day, which I was able to do very easily before my daughter was here. And with motherhood, you have this constant feel of you're being judged. Um, you're dealing with your emotions. You have this, you know, am I doing this the right way Um pressure every day on you you have the inability to switch off like you cannot switch off even when you're trying to to just relax at night you have a thousand and one things going through your head and at the same time you're learning to trust your gut instincts and those um, motherly instincts as well no one can prepare you for being a parent nobody and your child will not behave the way the books tell you that she's supposed to behave Hmm. and she will not do what she's supposed to do. And she will not like what she's supposed to like. So what I have learned is that, you know, I've learned to be a little bit more kinder to myself. um, And I've still got a long way to go. So I've learned to be kinder and acknowledge that this is all normal and that's perfectly okay. It's a bit chaotic um, but it's perfectly okay. And um, with chaos, I didn't have a lot of it in my corporate life. I, I'm a highly organized individual and plan out my day. And exactly what I've planned is how the the day unfolds. When you throw a child into the mix, <laughs> nothing goes according to plan. But I've learned to just let things go and. Um, you know, enjoy the whole experience, all the learnings that come with it because one day, although it may seem a little bit tough and challenging now, I'm sure I'm going to wish for these days to come around again.
0: Yeah. There's no, there's no, uh, what, when you did schedule going back to the corporate days, what type of yeah. time blocks did you work in?
1: Oh, look, it, it would vary depending on what the, the task or what my agenda looked like for that particular day. So I would, I, I would usually arrive to work between six thirty and seven. Yeah. Um, and i would i like to leave the office early um you know i'd rather start early and i'm the type of person that will look at a pile of work that needs to be done and say i'm going to get through that as quickly as possible so i can then go home and actually enjoy life outside of the office yeah then there are other people and you know we just think differently there are other people who will look at that same pile of work and say hey I've got eight hours to do this and I'm going to take all my breaks and I'm going to take every minute of those eight hours to get through this work. Yeah. Like I said, there's no right or wrong way. I just prefer to to get the job done, um, concentrate on the task at hand, do it well, and then be able to leave satisfied and enjoy the things in life that I actually do enjoy doing.
0: Yeah. I'm with you on that as efficient as possible, get it done. I mean, he wants to do things in slow motion. I, I never get, I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. So-
1: yeah. And it is, you know, one of the issues that I have in the corporate space is um, I do have an issue with you know, relinquishing tasks. I'm a, a perfectionist and that means I often take on too much only because I expect the job done in a certain way and I expect it to be done in a certain time frame. And if I feel like that delegating that to somebody isn't going to um, get that done when I expect or how I expect to be done, I'll just continue doing it myself. So... You know, I need to learn to be a little bit more patient with people. Um, And look, no doubt motherhood has taught me a lot more patience than what I ever thought that I had. Mm. Um, But referring back to the corporate sector, I could be a little bit more patient and, you know, delegate things that, you know, a little bit more things, not just the things that I don't want to be doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. With, uh, you mentioned, you know, scheduling. So how do you find your me time? Is that something that you've only just discovering to sort out now? Or is it something that you sort of programmed straight away? Like I'm working so much with this kid. I need to have like my one hour a day or one hour a week. How do you sort of structure that?
1: Yeah, look for me, me time equals self-care. And as Frankie grows older, I want to set an example for her and show her that it's important to love yourself and that it's okay to want to have to spend some time alone i know when i have a lack of me time i feel burnt out i start to resent my partner i feel overwhelmed i feel isolated now me time today is very different to what it looked like before frankie was born When you know those days i was able to spend all the time that i wanted at the gym you know do multiple sessions in a day walking and most around of hong my,
0: kong chasing pokemon
1: yeah walking around hong kong having banana milkshakes with troy um and if all, any listener <laughs> any listener goes to hong kong um don't order a banana milkshake if you're as lucky as troy you'll get a glass of milk with a banana in it <laughs> um,
0: that's no that's no, that's legit <laughs>
1: yeah that's legit um so yeah look me time you know a lot of before frankie did involve around health and fitness a lot whether that was training or whether that was doing research um or listening to a podcast or reading a really good book i know that for me to be able to get me time these days i have to be much more flexible and it changes on a daily basis so me time one day um might be my partner taking care of dinner so i can take the walk take the dogs for a walk around the um the block or it might be that my mum comes over so i can get my hair done or i can do some study or or listen to um you know a ted talk so although it's very different it's just as important it's probably even more important now for me to um demonstrate a little bit of self-care
0: yeah i I need to do that myself i'm actually really bad i tend to only work a lot recently i need to get back into reading and studying a bit more because it's it's good because it's time away from your phone. Is that what you sort of need as well? Cause it's like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you raised a very interesting point that, you know, the ability to be able to recognize that you need to start spending a little bit more time on yourself is, is important. You know, the fact that you are starting to recognize that, Hey, I'm, I'm flipping a little bit here. I need to start, you know, diverting my energies back into areas that I really enjoy is a positive thing. And not many people are able to, to do that um so the, the challenge for you Troy is to actually do what you just said and <laughs> uh, start doing the things that you enjoy doing
0: yeah I I, I probably should um set some time uh, you know what I will commit to setting some time every week to doing that I just don't know how much time yet but I'll figure that one out maybe tomorrow so I want you to talk us through the transition from being an i athlete to an i no now i pro league judge yeah
1: look sorry Middle of last year, um, I had a call from Simone, who forms part of um, Tony's team. And for those of you who don't know Simone Collins, she's an absolute gem. So much work and effort behind the scenes to to get those shows um, up and running. Um, And Simone placed a call to me to let me know that Tony was looking to diversify the judging panel and was very keen to get a higher percentage of females Um, representing um, the sport from a judging perspective and you know I was really overwhelmed and quite humbled that they would even consider me Um, and I say that because if I reflect back at my time as a competitor I was one of those real pain in the ass athletes right I was the, the first one to want feedback in fact I would march off stage and you know straight to Michael Bruner and demand feedback Um, and you know Michael and I often... Demand
0: is the key word
1: (laughs) (laughs) I want want the feedback and I want it now and you know I I laugh about it now but I think wow what a pain in the ass I was Um, but you know and and at the same time you know if we at that period Tony Tony wasn't the leader of our sport Um, you know it was run by um, a different, or I should say, you know, run by different organisers and their, the judging view was very different to what is today. We've already discussed mm-hmm. that. So I very happily accepted the invitation to join the judges panel and what that allowed me to do was develop a greater appreciation for the amount of work, in particular, Michael um, puts into the shows and it's not just about sitting at that table show after show, um, if he has such a genuine interest and passion for the sport and he wants to make sure that he has his judges um, completely up to date with their knowledge and what we're looking for on stage, even to, you know, even to the point where, you know, moments before the show starts, he's got all his judges in the room going through um, the recent, you know, Olympia photos. So we're able to recognise... You know what we're actually judging on the day in the day you're going to have differing opinions right there's no point having a panel if all the judges are going to agree the point is so you're able to um, i guess uh, you know put your your thoughts down and your opinions and be able to respectfully have a conversation if there is a differing opinion in most cases you know the the first, second, and third places are, are pretty, pretty obvious to the to the judges. But I've loved I've loved that transition from athlete to pro league judge. I enjoy being part of um, the team. Um, I enjoy the um, the leadership that I've been given and the support that I've been given by Michael and its existing judges to join that team. And I'm excited to see where the sport you know, what, what season B looks like and, and beyond. We had a pretty disrupted end to season A and, and the Arnold's. And I'm excited to see, and if, you know, admittedly, uh, as a figure competitor, I would never have said this, but I'm most excited to see what happens in the bikini space. I've been entertained and uh, more by bikini than any other division over the past couple of years, and just seeing the calibre and the standard of athletes come through is exceptional.
0: I actually didn't expect you to say that, so would you say that bikini is your your favourite category now? Can we get that on record?
1: I enjoy watching it. I think that, you know, to my point earlier, now that we have Tony running the show and we have pro cards being awarded, because for those who, you know, were around a few years ago, there was a long time between pro cards being issued to athletes. Very long time. And we're seeing such... An amazing quality lineup, time and time again, you know, week after week, even you have athletes transforming from their qualifying show to their state shows, and it's like a completely different person. Mm. I, I it, it's wonderful to watch and wonderful to see, and great. There is that is so much. There is so much interest amongst young emerging females to you know give bikini a go and the way that they're coming on stage, some of them are absolutely
0: mind-blowing. Definitely. And I would want to quick, uh, quickly touch on as well, for any new listeners, Michael Buner is the head judge for the Pro League. So any first-time competitors that are listening. Now, with the transition to judging, when was the first time that you judged and do you find judging difficult? And was that difficult for you to, oh, I know what I'm judging, but you've you kind of been in the sport for a while. So it's kind of a silly question. Yeah, but, I don't know. Look, How did you feel about it? For-
1: been in the sport for a while um nationals last year was my my first show and i enjoyed it a lot more than what i thought i would uh i I keep a close eye on athletes in their off season if i'm not at the interstate shows i'm based in victoria so if i'm not in the interstate shows i will keep a close eye on who's competing on the day Um, have a look at the the photos of those who Take out first, second, and third. So I, I you know, I've got a, an eye on, um, I guess, com- those who have competed and those that are looking to looking to compete. Um, at the moment, I'm concentrating on really um, mastering judging for the female athletes, um, rather than doing both female and male. Okay. Um, I'll look at the male competitors in in season B. I think, that's the approach that I chose to take. I'm not saying that it's right for everyone, but for me, I really wanted to feel completely confident with judging females before I then move over to the men's category and and like I said I was blown away by the standard of bikini competitors at the nationals and for those that um, persevered through those challenges that we had reorganizing and moving the event to a new venue for the Arnolds wow like <sighs> Some of those athletes, like I said, were mind-blowing,
0: absolutely mind-blowing. You mentioned the old IFV, so let's call them the old IFV, and we've got the pro league, (laughs) right? (laughs) I mean, I don't know what we're going to call them. So old IFV, otherwise we're going to keep referring to them as, I don't know, what what, what did we say before? Anyway, the the old IFV. So with the pro league now, you've obviously seen some improvements with the judgings, but with that, what are some of your frustrations in judging if you have any?
1: I think all judges have their individual frustrations um for me primarily is people who let themselves down with presentation and posing those who have you know a, a physique that's worthy of a first place or at least a you know a second or third and you know they just their, their tan is not applied properly or they've you know they're wearing a bikini that's too big or too small Oh, and, oh, you yeah, know, one thing for me, and this might seem like a one percenter, but I can tell you now it's those one percenters that really add up and they add up um, pretty quickly when it comes to putting a score together. Mm. You know, really bad hair extensions. <laughs> like Women who have short hair and then, you know, don't invest in good quality hair extensions. For me personally, I would rather you not have that hair extensions and just have your natural hair on stage than um, wearing hair extensions and you end up looking like, you know, Joe Dirt. Yeah. Like it, it, it's, it doesn't look good on stage. Um, and this, I guess, comes down to as well, when we, we spoke about earlier about being financially in a position to be able to commit to those expenses that, um make sure that your presentation is where it needs to be on the day. So you know, good hair, good makeup, a good bikini, that your tans applied properly, you know, investing the the extra little bit of money to have pro tan do it rather than you trying to put it on yourself. They it all makes a huge difference. You know the other frustration I think and this is again me you know recalling my days of being that pain in the ass competitor that I referred to myself is you see athletes time and time again who are given or number one demand feedback and then number two don't take on that feedback
0: have you uh, so, i've got a question for you quickly i've got to interrupt you have you had an emily Zillick like person come up and demand feedback from you yet
1: oh absolutely absolutely <laughs> i have
0: but do you and do I you, smile. You? Did you like it <laughs>
1: yeah. and, I, and i smile because i think wow that was me yeah
0: that
1: was me um you know if you are going to ask for judges feedback and in particular if you are someone who has a desire to pursue a pro card you should be taking on board what the judges have to say and in particular what Michael has to say people don't see the effort that that man goes through to not only collect and consolidate the feedback from all the judges he then has to communicate it to everybody that is approaching him so if you are really um, set on achieving your pro card, then guess what? You're going to have to listen to what the judges have to say. Most times what the judges have to say is pretty consistent. If, you, if you're doing it because you just want to do it and you like the way your body looks and you're comfortable not getting a place or not getting that pro card, then you don't really have, you know, you don't have to listen. But there's no point in you arguing about what the judge's opinions are. If you are someone who constantly ignores what they have to say um, and continues to come in looking the same time and time again, you know what you need to work on. You've been told what you need to work on. You either, number one, accept that and make the changes or, number two, don't and potentially not achieve the results that you're wanting to achieve.
0: Yeah. And I can say personally that you've given some really good feedback to me and some of the competitors have asked, you know, that we've spoken about. And I haven't agreed with every decision that you've made. Um, I think most yeah. of the time we do, but there has yeah. been. I won't mention the specific time that we probably know what I'm talking about. And yeah. I was like, why did this happen? You gave me a logical reason. I thought, you know what? I can accept that because I can see your point of view. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to implement those changes for those competitors moving forward to either season B or season A next year.
1: Yeah, it is, it, we need to remind ourselves it's a subjective sport. It is all about opinion on the day. And to my point earlier, you, you need to have a diverse judging panel that, is, you know, that sits in different spots across that stage to be able to see different angles of a competitor. So once that information is consolidated, you're going to get a pretty accurate result you know just be respectful if you're approaching a judge for an opinion for their feedback be respectful you know most of them had a pretty long day someone like Michaels often on the back of judging the, the previous week at in, interstate yeah. there's a lot of competitors that are asking for feedback so just be respectful in the way that you um that you are given the when you are asking for the feedback and if you are you know, if you're not comfortable with what's being told, or you want clarity, or you may not necessarily agree, agree, you're more than happy to raise that, but just do it in a respectful way.
0: Yeah. What are some of the biggest things you look for on stage? From let's you mentioned bikinis, so let's stick with bikini for now. Um, yeah, what's, what's What are some of the things that impress you the most?
1: Ah, uh, look. If I refer to the most recent um, show that I judged, which was the Arnold's. Someone who puts the time, energy, and effort in their posing and their overall presence is, just stands out. It really does stand out. When you see an athlete walk on stage that, you know, without much effort just flows, and I should say, sorry, not without much effort because I'm sure they've put in a lot of effort, but it comes across that it's just effortless. They flow. Their transitions in posing are flawless They've learnt how to walk in their heels. You know, they're not stumbling. They make really good eye contact. They know when to smile. Again, these things, you know, if you can have the best physique on stage, but if you do not know how to show it off, if you do not come across as someone who is confident, unfortunately that may cost you a win or potentially a place on the day. So it's always, I always smile when I see someone come on stage that you know has put in as much energy into their overall presentation as they have to their training and to their nutrition. It's a wonderful moment. It really is.
0: Yeah, I'm the same. I love seeing, you know, when they're sort of just coming up the stairs or they're just on the side where whatever Mm -hmm. the setup is and you just see a really nice tan. And you see like really deep separation in the abs and you look at them and their hair and makeup's on point. You're like, okay, I can't wait for you to walk right now. And then when they yeah. walk and put it together, it's like, all right, you're a top call out person.
1: Yeah. It, it, it's And I think for most people, not just the judges, I think for most people sitting in the crowd, those that are going to in that first call out uh, are, are very obvious. And again, it's not just because they have this incredible physique because you know, most people on stage have a, incredible physique it's about how they're showing it off and their ability to you know elude all this confidence and to draw that audience in you can tell that they've spent hours in front of the mirror you know they've learned how to connect with people and not be afraid to catch the judge's eye and you know I've had, you know, when you lock eyes with a competitor and you sort of see, sort of think to yourself, well, who's going to actually steer away first here? (laughs) You know, that's confidence to be able to do that with a smile on your face and be proud of what you are displaying to the judges and to the audience. It's nothing short of absolutely magnificent to watch.
0: So what are some of the things that a bikini competitor or competitor? let's not just talk about bikini, but figure physique as well for the ladies, some of the mistakes that they make on stage. So obviously we've spoken about posing presentation, but what are some of the other things that you might think that could rule someone out in your mind? They might have a good physique, but you're like, you're let down on some element of their, whatever they're doing.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, it's, symmetry still seems to be a little bit of an issue um in my opinion with a lot of figure and physique competitors they're either um training in a way that's not complementary to their structure they may have a really overdeveloped upper body and an underdeveloped lower body or or vice versa um you know we've had don't get me wrong we've had some Standout athletes in those divisions. You know, we had Rach with her pro card win last year in physique. We had Sonia, who was that standout, at, you know, Sonia's physique. You know, she's yeah. she got genetically gifted, but genetics only gets you so far. You know, when she walks on stage, that is a pro worthy physique. So I think people often get so focused on training and developing certain body parts that they forget that's important for that body to be symmetrical. So, yes, you may want to have big shoulders and big arms, but it also needs to be in proportion with your body and the category that you're, you choose to compete in. Um, unfortunately, as well, I get a little bit put off with, um, you know, the, the obvious signs of um, performance tension, drugs, abuse. And, yeah. you know, it's, you are supposed to still look feminine regardless of the category that you're competing in, it's important that you still look feminine. And for many women, they, they've taken it to a point where, you know, they, their presentation lacks because they've, you know, they've taken it to the absolute extreme. You know, they're just, you know, they might seem like little things, but overall in the scheme of things, when you're competing in a sport where it's about, you know, how, how lean you are, how symmetrical you are, how well you present yourself, you cannot neglect one component and think that you're going to get a successful result.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of, you know, symmetry, flow, proportion. I think, you know, everyone loves all Like you need to tick all the boxes, like conditioning is so important, posing, but I find that a lot of ladies, the biggest, I think the most consistent thing is, so sometimes we see ladies with really good conditioning across categories, but they're lacking muscle. They're lacking symmetry and flow. So, Most of the time, especially at an Arnold, if they're in the open category, conditioning is not really a major concern. It's the the development and how a body flows and it's put together. And I think that needs to be addressed in the off season, coming up with a plan. It's like, okay, my glutes, hamstrings suck if I'm in figure. What do I need to do to bring up these areas? I think people aren't smart enough or coaches aren't smart enough to identify the areas and then program based on that. It's like, get some feedback. We're going to bring up, you know, in obviously their own way, my way would be high frequency, high volume, but they come back without making the improvement. So what do you think people need to do? And how do you change that? Like, how do you get that message across to competitors that ask for feedback and they bring the same thing the next time?
1: I think there's, you know, we, we discussed it earlier on. There has to be a, you have to be accountable as an athlete. If you have a collaboration with a coach, and that has, um, you know, you've you've done a number of competitions and you've collaborated now for a number of years and you're still getting the same feedback, you need to ask yourself some questions. Mm. Number one, is my coach actually listening to what I have to say and the feedback that's being given? And number two, if he or she is and these changes aren't being made, do they actually have the knowledge and expertise to be able to assist me and support me on this journey in transforming my physique and in the, the development areas that do need to be developed? And for some reason, and I don't know why, we shy away from having those difficult conversations, and we shouldn't. Yeah. Um, you're paying these people good money to help get you on stage, and you have every right to ask them those questions, and you have every right to, I guess, cease a a collaboration or a partnership and pursue, um, you know, a partnership with someone who you think is going to be, you know, more beneficial for you in addressing some of those development areas that the judges have highlighted for you. So, you know, a judge can give you all the opinions time and time again, but if you're not actually doing something with that feedback, or if you're passing that feedback on to the person that is has been tasked and essentially has been employed by you to make those changes. And you're not seeing those changes be accountable, make the call, dump them, find someone else. Who's going to be able to take you to that next level.
0: Yeah. I I never understood that because I'll have first time competitors that say Troy, like I want to compete in the IFB bikini, you know, I say, what is the goal? You know, it's it's like, Mm. that's the first thing. Like you need to qualify. You need to ask the individual, what do they want to do? It's like, okay, I like every, everyone knows that I don't like competing for the experience, but I ask them what they want. And most of the time, they're like, "I want to win," or at the very least, they want a top call out. So, well, some people will say at the very least top three, but most people will say at the very least bare minimum top call out. So, yeah. I would look at their physique as a first timer, and I'd be like, "Look, we need to bring up these areas for development wise, so we are competitive to put you in that position." So, it's like, what are these coaches doing even in the off season? <laughs> let alone... what are they
1: not doing, I think is the
0: question. It's like, it blows my mind because they get to the contest and you get the feedback that you should have already known in the off-season, what you're working on, what you're probably working on during your contest prep phase. Go to the contest, you get feedback and then you rock up with the exact same physique next time with very minimal improvements. It's like, what are you doing as an individual? And the onus also needs to go on the coach, but what the fuck are you doing collaboratively together? And then you have people as well that have gone through some masculine changes. They're not so much... I would say they're losing the femininity and they stick with the same coach and then it progressively gets worse over time. Like if that was me, I'd be like, hold on a second. I'm not getting a good result. I'm not winning a comp that I should have been winning long time ago. Um, Now, you know, getting some really bad, interesting side effects. I think I should go elsewhere or maybe retire from competing, whatever it is, but something needs to change.
1: Something needs to change. Exactly right. And, yes, there is, uh, you know, a coach has a responsibility to be able to provide the advice and the support that the athlete is asking for. But primarily you have to be accountable. You're the athlete. And as I mentioned earlier, you're you're the one that's paying them for that service. And I don't know why so many competitors are hesitant in ceasing those partnerships and doing what's right for them Um, in the long term with the sport and finding someone they know has proven results that has athletes who take the stage show after show and look better every time they take the stage, you know, maybe you need to take some time away from the sport and not compete and do a little bit of research, do a little bit of homework, speak to other athletes, connect with other coaches, go to other shows, just a bit of a reset and start to really evaluate what your, what your goals are again and who is the right person to assist you? Who is, who is going to give you a customised and individualised plan that addresses those development areas and opportunities that are not going to make you feel like they're giving you the same program, the same plan, season after season, week after week, month after month, because it's obviously not working. Or it may have initially, but it's no longer working anymore. So be brave enough to make some difficult decisions, move on from those existing relationships, and find someone who is actually going to help you and support you on that journey, whether that is to win, whether that is to place, or so whether that is to make top call out.
0: Yeah. And I want to probably emphasize the point you have no obligation to your coach, you know? Right. No, so, People, people get married and they get divorced. So what does that say about your coach? You have, you shouldn't feel, you shouldn't feel yeah. obligated at all. And so many people actually feel like that. They're like, I can't have a conversation yeah. with my coach. And I'm like, really? Like I, I try to, you know, I can understand some people have maybe some self-esteem concerns, and et cetera, but you want to be able to have that conversation, open communication lines. Like obviously your relationship with Andy that you mentioned earlier, it was really curious to me. I was like, okay, tick, 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 ticking all the boxes. That's exactly what you want. So if you don't get that originally, when you have a discussion with your coach, then what are the chances are later down the track? Should anything come up where you're not happy? How can you communicate that? It's not going to happen. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And be, be open-minded to the fact that because a friend or a co-athlete had results using this particular coach, it doesn't mean that you're also going to get those same results that coaching and athlete relationship has to extend beyond just being able to issue and adhere to a nutrition and training plan. You need to be able to connect with one another. You need to be able to build trust and build rapport. You need to feel confident that this person, you know, in those last few days leading into a comp, those last hours before a comp is going to be available to help you through, whether it's physically physically, or being available by phone or, or email, you need to have complete trust and faith in that individual. And if you are starting to doubt that or question that in the slightest, I would suggest to walk away and start researching an alternative coach. Yeah.
0: One of the questions um, that have been submitted through Instagram, we didn't, we didn't touch on before was, so what is your favourite type of bikini physique? So what do you look for when you're judging bikini?
1: Oh, so... Again, it's, if we had a look at the the top three from the Arnold's this year, you know, we had, um, Alex take out first place. We had, uh, Rochelle second and had Olivia third.
0: Yeah. So this is a tall class for everyone that's listening.
1: This is a tall class division. And that was, that was tough. Like that was really, really tough. Um, you had three girls with incredible presentation who who were just beautifully presented on stage. Um, Alex won that show, I think, because that rear shot for her was a was, a, was a, you know, an absolute standout. You know, she really dominates that shot from behind. So I was overly, I, I was so impressed by that quality that all three of those women brought to stage it was a very difficult category to judge and on any given day either one of those women could have walked away um, with that first place you know i've mentioned in the past that um you know i was a huge fan of amanda latona yep. um, when i was an ifb bikini competitor um, you know and look at these days you've got Alyssa pacini who really has dominated over the past couple of years. Um, she's got that, again, that incredible presence. I think she's that type of woman who doesn't need to say a word, but you feel like you've had the best conversation in the room because she just dominates. She, had this, she has this incredible charisma um, and a physique that just just flows. And then we also have, uh, I can't pronounce her surname, but Laura Lee? I think she came fifth. Yeah, Laura Lee. Lorelei, yeah, at at the Olympia. So I'm a huge fan of her physique as well. But bikini changes and it changes so rapidly, um, you know, depending on the transformation that those individual athletes are taking. As I mentioned earlier, I'm so excited by this division more than I'm excited by any other division currently within
0: the, the sport of bodybuilding what it has to offer what about wellness think- though what about wellness like wellness is <laughs> exciting for me because <laughs> you <know>, i'm <laughs> a big bikini dude right but like i've i didn't think i'd ever really sort of fall in love with bikini as much as i have and because i've mentioned many times on this podcast that it was probably my least favorite category and now it's my favorite category right. but wellness is slowly chipping at bikini and yeah. It's a close second for me right now because of yeah. I'm a big fan of muscle, but I'm a big fan of muscle in the right way, and that's obviously making sure that these ladies stay feminine. So I had to interrupt you there, but like, what do you also think about wellness um, in comparison?
1: I think wellness is a great opportunity for many bikini athletes who have been told that they are holding too much muscle, that don't necessarily want to step it up to figure, but have great potential to be competitive in the sport of in, in the sorry in the category of of wellness. I think that category has huge potential. I think the number of athletes competing in that sport will blow out and blow out very, very quickly.
0: Have you seen Um, some of the girls doing, have you seen some of the girls that are prepping for season B?
1: I have seen some of the girls that are prepping for season B and it's, it's exciting. (laughs) It's very exciting. I've got to, I've got to,
0: like, there's, there's, um, there's a couple, there's actually two that I know of that are very, very, very dangerous um i'll, I'll i will will not say it on air i'll, I'll sort of yeah it's it probably
1: there. the two that i might have in mind as well but what, <laughs> what i think wellness will do um is also attract a lot of competitors who um, left the ifbb a few years ago again before tanya took it over because they were constantly being told that they were too pro-like for bikini so mm-hmm. pursued a path um, or pursued a journey with another federation i think what we'll, what wellness will do will bring those people back into ifbb and that's exciting um, we lost a lot of good people to other federations and i'm not just saying I
0: think, yeah we, we really did when when the old <laughs> the old ifbb the old ifbb old really I- fucked us up because a lot of really strong competitors i felt at the time that were frustrated with that old ifbb judging went yeah. to wbff and a perfect example of that that comes to mind is Asha Coulthard. She Mm -hmm. wasn't, she felt like she was competing all the time, wasn't rewarded uh, with the bikini pro card. And she's like, you know, I'm not getting looked after here. I'm a great athlete. And to be fair, I I think that she was probably that she should have had a pro card at that time. Now Mm -hmm. she obviously went to WPFF, got a fitness pro card, and now she's like the two time reigning world champion. So, and obviously you mentioned before, Rach White was the same thing. She was frustrated with the IFBB judging moved on. And how many other competitors have we seen during that time, that may have not only made the transition, but who have actually just thought, you know what, I'm not going to compete again because yeah, of the right. judging. And, you know, you're there's right. a few people yeah. that come to mind that I won't mention, but um, it's, uh, I'm just very glad that the judging's different now. And obviously, Michael and Tony have obviously put a lot of time and attention to selecting mm-hmm. the right judges, such someone like yourself, because we've always had good conversation. And you're, for the people that are listening, oh, you know, you're a fresh new judge, you've been in the sport for a long time. You know how to analyze physiques very well. And I think you mentioned before that you're not too confident or you, you're at least not going to spend time into judging males. I think you'd probably be a better bodybuilding or a male judge than the majority anyway.
1: Uh, look, and it's not, that, it's not that I don't want to. It's just that um, you know, when, I, when I take on a new task, I really want to master it um, to the best of my ability. Um, and that's why my focus has been, the past two shows has been um, on the, the females. And I feel like I've got a really good grasp on that. Like I said, I've, I've followed it for quite some time. Even after I chose to retire from competing, I was still very much involved in the industry um, through my brother who originally competed in men's physique and then moved into um, to the classic physique as well. So I always kept a close eye on what was happening, who was competing still attended all the shows um, that were based here in, in Victoria. And in fact, traveled a fair bit with Rach White um, when she was competing with the WBFF twos. Um, so it's always been an interest of mine. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to still be involved in the sport. Um, and in a way where I feel that I can also add some value to.
0: I want to go back to the Arnold. So you spoke about you obviously judging the Arnold. So what were your thoughts on the show overall in terms of, maybe the calibre of competition, the pro card winners. And do you see those pro card winners potentially doing well in the pro circuit moving forward?
1: I think first and foremost, um, to, you know, to be able to put that show on, given the restrictions that were put in place, and for Tony to last minute you know, relocate the show, be able to, you know, get it all together, to still remain compliant with all those restrictions that were put in place is full testament to his ability, his leadership and his passion for the sport. For those that were able to, you know, put their heads down and were were adhere to their competition prep and were able to still fly into to Melbourne and compete, it was actually a really high standard show, um, and again, I look at you look at bikini and that especially that open that open class, the tall open class, exceptional, phenomenal. So I was most impressed. I you know walking in, walking um, into the venue that day, I wasn't sure what to expect. I knew that there were a lot of people that wouldn't be attending that had worked exceptionally hard for many months, um, but unfortunately because of the COVID-19 pandemic had made the decision, whether it was logistically or whether it was health related, not to participate. So given the, um, the number of athletes that were on the day, they came in at an exceptionally high standard. They really did. I wasn't expecting what I saw that day. Um, it was a fun show to judge. Um, there were some new faces there that I hadn't seen on stage before. So it was a great opportunity for me to familiarize myself. With them, and if I have a look at the the pro card winners, you know, we've mentioned Alex before. Um, Sonia was a real standout for me when it came to figure, and I think for most people, no one can argue. I I think, in my opinion, I don't think anyone could argue the fact that she was by far the most deserving figure competitor on that stage.
0: It was probably Um, the easiest pro win of the day.
1: I would, yeah, I would have to, I would have to say so. She, again, she definitely has genetics on her side, but she's a a hardworking athlete. She's got beautiful symmetry. And what I like about Sonia is that she improves every time she gets on stage. She Mm. really, she takes on the judges' feedback and she works hard. And the following time she takes that stage, she's better than the, the previous version of herself that she presented on that day. Um, it was good to see the numbers for women's physique as well. Um, you know, finally getting those numbers back up for a while there, you saw the same faces and the numbers were starting to, to drop off. And Erin took out the, the pro-physique. She had a, a you know, really beautiful presentation on the day as well as her posing routine. Yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, Again, uh, good to see that not too many people were deterred from pushing through those final days and made the effort to come on the day. We had our first pro card, official pro card issue to, to wellness and um, you know the scorecards have been released and you can see that it was very close between first and second, exceptionally, exceptionally close. And credit to uh, Jacinda for the way that she handled, um, I guess, that pro card being taken back or, well, taken off her after, um, you know, poor Tony had announced that she was a worthy recipient after the Nationals, where, in fact, um, he wasn't in a place to do so. So she really handled that situation exceptionally, exceptionally well, far better than I think most athletes would have handled. And on the day... Um, she came on stage exactly how she committed um, or what she committed after the nationals win and that she was there to dominate and she wanted that pro card and it was deservingly hers in the day.
0: So would you say that, um, you know, figure and physique is an easier class to judge and would that be an accurate statement? Cause for me, if I look at, like, I would say uh, it's easy for me to judge bikini or wellness, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I'm an expert in that but still, I look at it and go figure out figures are very night and day for me. I'm like, I've, I look at it and go, I think this is quite easy to pick out. It's quarter turns. You're looking at who's got the best X frame conditioning and fullness. Whereas bikini is very subjective. Would that be an accurate thing to agree with? That's,
1: yeah, that's a fairly, that's a fairly accurate statement. I find with figure and physique, it's very obvious who, um, who's going to make that top call out. Mm. You know, you are looking for you know that muscle density as well as um, symmetry, that overall presentation, and then you move into the um, the walks and and the the, um, the posing rounds. So I think that it's a, a pretty fair statement to make. I think as the quality of standard has lifted in the bikini categories, it's made it very hard to judge, and you can tell that by the time it's taking to be able to confirm what that top call-out lineup is and how many times athletes are being brought back and forth from front of stage um, to be able to make that final decision. You know, that, like I said, the standard has lifted and it's lifted incredibly in such a short period of time. It's an exciting time for that particular category and I, I can only imagine when season B comes around, judges will have even more of a difficult um, time Choosing the worthy recipients of those places
0: as well as that pro card. Yeah. So, because it's a, let's call it a challenging or more competitive category, do you find it more interesting or does your interest come from that as a judge because you know it's going to be a competitive environment? And you're like, oh, I've got to really work right now. I've got to think about things because you're a detailed person. You're like analyzing things. Because it's so subjective, does that really give you more of a reason to like the category?
1: Uh, look, I, I like judging all categories. They they bring a different element of entertainment on the day, you know, bit different excitement um, for each of the categories. But with yeah, you're right. With with bikini, it is a little bit more subjective. I find that it's harder to definitely pick the the you know your your top call out, and then having to choose the the top three, and then your um, your first place. I find over the past couple of years and even before judging the the standouts in the other categories um are quite obvious. Yeah. You know who um you know, I I wasn't a judge at the time and I, I might be sound a little bit biased stating this, but when Rach took the stage last year at the Arnolds yeah, there was no doubt.
0: It was quite obvious. <laughs> I, I, I remember like I think I was I was like paying attention, I was like, Oh, what's on stage? And I looked at I think I was at a booth or something. And then I'm like, oh, physique's on. I'm like, oh, this is going to be boring. Rachel's won it easily. Like, I just knew because I saw her hit one pose and I thought, what's the point of watching this? Like, as impressive <laughs> as she is, but like, I still watched it, but I was just like, yeah. this is kind of easy to see. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Look, I, I think that, you know, going back to your question with bikini, I think I'm really enjoying that as well because bikini has proven me wrong I was one of those figure competitors that will look at bikini athletes and say hey you don't train nowhere near as hard as I do and you don't Mm. diet as hard as I do and the more that I've become involved as a judge and given the opportunity to see how quickly that category has progressed in a short period of time the more respect that I've developed for these athletes and just a remarkable transformation that many of them have taken and continue to undertake as they become more engrossed and committed to achieving their goal. and um, you know there's so many bikini competitors that want that bro card. And you know it's quite it's quite a quite a spectacle to watch when you have athletes who have dieted just as hard as each other, who have trained just as hard as each other, who have spent so much time, energy, effort, time, you know, resources, money in looking the best they can on that day, that it becomes a real contest. And that's exciting.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. The reason what, you know, I, I suppose changed my opinion on bikini from being my least favorite category of all time to my favorite was the fact that I see the amount of work that bikini competitors put in not just from training and nutrition everyone does that but the posing presentation is up another level if all other categories yeah. figure physique I think definitely can improve their posing presentation across the board like the amount of money that the bikini competitors spend on posing coaches and presentation is is next level so obviously the financial commitment comes into thing into play but if only the men's bodybuilders put as much time into posing and presentation as the bikini would have a more fun show to watch. And that's why I find it really difficult to sit through some men's posing routines.
1: Mm. Yeah. And again, it, to highlight the point that I made, it's an, an appreciation that I have developed um, since becoming a judge because I no longer have that form stereotyped opinion of a bikini competitor. I can appreciate all the elements um, and all the hard work that they have injected into their competition prep, purely for our entertainment, really. Yes, they're achieving their goals, but they're on that stage, I would say, longer than most people because there is, uh, there, is there are more numbers in bikini. There are more times that they're called out front and back of stage. So they have to be on for a little bit longer than most of the other categories, and, yeah, it's, it's something, it's a, it's a category that's, I think, going to continue to grow in popularity that will continue to attract interest from the general public because for a lot of aspiring athletes, for a lot of young females who may be considering um, competing, looking at a, a bikini competitor who presents well, who is feminine, who's got a, a beautiful physique, is an attainable goal. Whereas for, other, for looking at other categories, you know, a figure athlete or a physique athlete might just put you off a little bit or, or scare you off. So um, credit to the, the women who have been involved in that bikini category over the past couple of years and for them lifting the standards um, and putting on a spectacular show for us to watch.
0: I, I don't want to talk about bikini for a second. I want to go to figure. Do you see any specific figure competitors, amateur competitors, that could be the next Sonia moving forward. Is there anyone that impresses you?
1: I have to be very careful here, Troy. <laughs> that's why I that's didn't why want
0: to talk about bikini. I thought, I want to talk about something that I can. I've got no vested in, there's no invested interest in that. No.
1: Look, I'd love to see, um, I'm not sure what her plans are, but I'd love to see what Elise Fargie brings to the stage mm. next time she chooses to compete. Elise certainly isn't the biggest figure competitor but she does have beautiful symmetry and she has a tight tight tiny waist i know that she spent a lot of time um over the past year or so um developing areas that she knows needed to be developed um she had an exceptional result in ohio i think it was which may have been her last show yeah i think so Um, yeah so i i'm excited to see what she brings to the stage next time if she if she does I'm, I'm hoping she does because she has huge potential and a few occasions just missed out on her on her pro card.
0: I want to ask you a question here so do you have any words of advice very generic statement any words of advice to competitors in general that you'd personally like to push out to them
1: <laughs> So I think a lot of the topics we've already covered um, you know first and foremost is to keep things in perspective Um, and this is you know going back to the topic we discussed earlier that bodybuilding needs to fit into you know your your life as it is don't go changing too much in order to pursue a hobby and a sport like like bodybuilding so be realistic with what it has to offer you Um, don't make too many sacrifices in order to, um, I guess, achieve those goals. And what I mean sacrifice is don't sacrifice relationships, don't sacrifice friendships, don't sacrifice career opportunities for the sake of doing a bodybuilding show. You know, it's something you could potentially look back on and have deep regret because the body ages and you get to a point in life, especially for a female, it's harder to put on muscle and it gets harder to get leaner. So what happens when you make the decision to quit or perhaps that decision is made for you, you want to be able to step away and feel like bodybuilding hasn't had too much of a disruption on your life. Because if it does and competing is taken away from you and you have nothing else, that's a pretty pretty sad state to have to, to be in. So pay you know, keeping it in perspective and having that really well-balanced approach when it comes to bodybuilding. We've spoken about um, being realistic with the financial commitments involved with bodybuilding as well. I was very fortunate. I had a a full clothing sponsorship, a full meal sponsorship and a a full um, supplementation sponsorship. But when I sat down at the start of every competition prep, I did my expenses as if those sponsorships did not exist because companies can pull out of sponsorship, but any, but any time they want the athlete, not, can't necessarily, but companies can make up any excuse to terminate an existing agreement. They will find a loophole somewhere. So if you haven't, if you have started this prep, assuming that you are going to be completely covered financially for whatever it may be, supplementation, bikini, Um, and you haven't uh, incorporated that into some of your um, financial um, planning and budgeting, you could then be in a little bit of trouble towards the end when you need to cough up the money to finish off this prep by purchasing whatever you need to purchase. So be realistic with what this is going to cost you. If you can't afford to do it this season, it doesn't matter. Just wait for the next season. Wait for the following year. You can still diet and you can still train, um, but just don't commit yourself or overcommit yourself financially, where you're then having to take out personal loans or credit cards or create that GoFundMe account to to mm. finish your competition prep. And on the topic of performance enhancing drugs and the abuse of performance enhancing drugs. Do your own research, be accountable as an athlete, understand what some of the potential short-term and long-term side effects are of you know, these the drugs that you may be considering taking or might be taking already. As I you know, I reiterate to you, do not deny yourself, do not deny your future self that opportunity that you right now may not know that you want. And it's easier to say that you don't want to have kids now when you're 25 and you might not be in a committed relationship. But I was 25 once too and I was married and 25 and in my previous relationship, I didn't want to have kids. Mm -hmm. But life changes and it throws curveballs at you and I was then, you know, seven years later on a path of trying to have a family And I wasn't someone that abused performance-enhancing drugs and I still had a really difficult time. So just be mindful of some of those decisions that you're making now that could have significant consequences and health implications for you in the future.
0: So I want to quickly touch on that because you brought up something that I didn't ask you before. So you've been in the industry for a while. What are some of the effects you've seen perhaps of the abuse of performance-enhancing drugs that you might – from maybe you've seen some friends go through a certain thing or competitors. Mm. What are some of the stories that you could probably share with so the audience?
1: I think of, obvious, the, the obvious transformation is the, um, you know, the, the widening of the jaw, the deepening of the voices because, you know, because of the thickening of the vocal cords, um, the, the facial hair, yeah, you know, they're, they're quite obvious um, or obvious. I mean, they may not be obvious to the individual, but they're mm. obvious to the person that's, um, you know, whether they're a family or, or friend psychologically um, I have seen friends go through a deep state of depression. Um, we often we often familiarize ourselves with what physical side effects these performance enhancing drugs can have, but we actually don't do too much research on the psychological impact that they may have on someone. And long term, you know, you, you can enter a state of depression and whether or not people admit to it at that point in time, it's potentially, you know, it's potential that those drugs are actually contributing to that person not being in the right frame of mind or, you know, furthering, you know, seeing them further enter into a deeper state of of depression. So um, that's been another obvious one for people that I know. And to their credit, most of these people have also been able to recognise that, and pull away from using those particular substances in um, in their follow in their you know prep, competition preps that may follow that one. Um, with an altered state of mind, you start to really then become very selfish and focus purely on you and focus only on the sport. You neglect your family, you neglect your friends, you neglect your work commitments. And again, that's something that you really don't want to be doing purely just to fulfill the, you know, a passion you might have in this point in time. So research, yes, the physical side effects, but it's just as important. if In fact, probably more important to research some of the psychological effects And there's lots of research and medical data available that you can quite easily have access to that gives you that information you need before you actually um, start experimenting or start taking these specific performance-enhancing drugs.
0: I would say that there is a lot of anecdotal evidence within the industry of idiots (laughs) 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 that we wouldn't even need to do such research because it's out Uh, there.
1: It's... It, it, it is. It is. It's, and I, you know, I mentioned it earlier, and I, and I didn't mean to be blunt, but you have so many of these young women who, you know, I just refer to it as on a path of shitting out their ovaries. You know, mm. they're not even thirty years old, and they're taking more gear than men that are preparing for a super heavyweight competition. <laughs> like, it's just, it's crazy. I um. And you know this story, Troy, I recently shared one of your podcasts and I had someone message me to tell me that um, the deepening of a female's voice, which in fact is thickening of vocal cords, cords, is completely reversible by taking vitamin B and drinking apple cider vinegar.
0: And and for (laughs) everyone, this person wasn't trolling, they were very sincere. (laughs)
1: They were very sincere. (laughs) And I started to, I was almost, I was quite shocked that people can, you know, someone could be so ignorant. And then, you know, the conversation continued how, oh, that's right. It was on the back of the podcast where we were talking about T3 and the health implications associated with people taking T3. And this particular person had the nerve to tell me that, Everyone should be, pres- be prescribed T3, that mm. there are health benefits, regardless of whether you're or not you're a competitor for taking T3, you know, and it's information like that that's shared that really concerns me. And I can tell you, as someone who suffers from an autoimmune disease, who has to take thyroid replacement medication... It's, it's not fun. <laughs> like You don't want to be, you don't want to be mucking around with your thyroid like that. It is not fun. It's not a laughing matter. It's something that you should leave to the health professionals um, to diagnose and it's medication. You should only be on if you have a thyroid issue.
0: Ain't that the truth. And a lot of people uh, I suppose would push these beliefs on you or me because they've been educated in a certain way. And there's not a lot of information yeah. or I'd say, there's probably a lack of correct information or people that do have a voice to say, look, this isn't the right thing to do. And naturally, you know, as I've mentioned a few times, if you're paying a professional, you expect them to give you good advice. So like obviously you mentioned you went to the fertility clinic, you were like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm prepared to do whatever you tell me. And I think a lot of the ladies that would go into a competition venture would expect their coach to have that same sort of relationship with them and, and tell them this is what you need to do. And this is why it's going to be beneficial. But the whole t3 story ladies i'm gonna say it again t3 is probably it's there's obviously worse drugs out there because i mean i was gonna say it's the worst drug but really you can get worse than that but if you're let's be real you can get t3 is pretty bad if you're taking it and you don't need it if you're shutting down any hormonal your endocrine system in some way shape or form and you need to switch it back on later it's um you're probably gonna to have to have long-term medication from it it's a long-term thing most people don't understand you take T3 once it's a very, you have a very high chance, very h- highly likely to need it for the rest of your life because you're shutting it down. Once you shut down something naturally, it's very hard to restimulate it. And there is no post-cycle therapy for thyroid hormone. There isn't. Anything there is That's entered. right. It's no. like for no. the guys that use testosterone, like we can use things to re-stimulate our testicles, like some semen production, etc., sperm count. You can't do that with thyroid. You can't do that with um and, and ladies, once you burn your eggs, once they're gone, they're gone.
1: They're gone. That's right. Once your AMH level depletes, and AMH is the measurement they use to measure your ovarian reserve. Um, we know that women's peak fertility is around about the age of twenty-eight and it rapidly declines after that. So and it's easy to say, I have options, you know, where there's IVF, but IVF's expensive. It's mm. extremely expensive and it's very um taxing on the mind on the body on your emotions and it's a path that you really don't want to have to pursue you know especially if you're using it as an excuse so you can take certain drugs for your bodybuilding career I mean that's just a ridiculous way to look at things you know thyroid health is so important and if you are considering to have a plan uh, uh, you know start considering to have a family or looking at at the planning stages at the very least One thing doctors will look at and fertility specialists and a good gynecologist is what is your thyroid function like? Because if you do fall pregnant and again, you know, with my autoimmune disease, my um, thyroid is constantly under stress. I was having blood tests on every four weeks to make sure that my dosage was adequate enough because during pregnancy, you know, the body demands more. And if your thyroid's not right, you're at higher risk of potential um, miscarriage, um, preterm birth, um, low birth weight and and so forth.
0: Thyroid is a really strong indicator of overall general health. And that's something that people don't understand. It's a lot of things are linked, but I think thyroid really is almost the foundation of one's health. If you have some thyroid issues and it's not identified and you're, you're not medicated for it, for someone that does need to be medicated. You aren't going to have a great time living your daily life because you're going to be lethargic, mm-hmm. you're going to be tired, you're not going to be able to have children because right. everything's not efficient. If your body's under stress, nothing's going to work the way it should and the way that you'd like it to. So it's something that needs to be taken very seriously.
1: And that's regardless of whether it's hyper or hypo, you know, whether you're overactive or underactive you know if you're feeling like something's not quite right and a good sign for women is um, you know menstrual cycles and yes as competitors you know when we do get quite lean our menstrual cycle can be disrupted but not getting your period for long periods of time is not a good thing it's an indication that something is not right and you should Definitely seek advice from a health professional. Um, you know, start with your start with your general practitioner. Um, if you don't have a gynaecologist, ask for a referral for, to a gynaecologist. Don't delay um, seeking medical advice associated with your reproductive system, because if you are planning one day to have children, you don't have all the time in the world. Um, you know, you need to make you. you you, you owe it to yourself to make good decisions that will impact your, re- good decisions now that will impact your reproductive health later on.
0: If your daughter, Frankie, wanted to do bodybuilding or bikini, <laughs> right? Would you encourage her to do so?
1: Number one, <laughs> my daughter has very little hope of ever doing bikini because <laughs> she has <laughs> she inherited her father's very short legs um she's more likely to be an olympic weightlifter if she has the physique um when she's older as she does now uh, but all jokes aside i um look i would always encourage her to do whatever sport that she'd want to do as long as she is making that decision Um, with the right information and understands all the the pros and cons associated with sport. One thing that I would definitely would like to see her do is, um, you know, team sports. I think there's a huge mm. advantage of participation in team sports. Not only learning teamwork, but the importance of, the importance of developing interpersonal skills, you know, how to socialise, how to talk to people, how to interact with people. And I think if I recall and reflect back on, on my childhood um, and the effort my parents went into to make sure that we were able to participate in the sport that we wanted to. They are some of the most fondest memories that I have. So I definitely wouldn't deter her her from doing bodybuilding if that's what she wanted to do, as long as she um, she was aware of the pros and cons, and there's pros and cons for every sport. But I would also be strongly encouraging her to participate in team sports.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think team sports is the way to go for all the all the reasons you just mentioned. Completely agree with you there. So I've got one final question to ask you because we've been talking forever. What is next for you?
1: What is next for me? Um, so I am still on maternity leave and I have been in the financial sector for well, almost two decades now. And I've been presented with wonderful opportunities over those years. Um, both to not only to develop my skills um, in the role of finance and executive management, um, but also to meet incredible people who um, may have started off as clients and have become very close friends or have become mentors. I know, though, that that type of role is extremely consuming of my time and... You know Frankie is much more deserving of that now. She's going to be a lot more demanding of my time as she grows older and is old enough to want to do activities and you know participate in events and and sports. So I'm in a stage of my life where I'm trying to identify what my career path looks like. Um, I know that any transition out of what I'm currently doing, if I choose to go down that path is going to take some time. I am very close to finalising my studies in nutritional wellness in a sports coach and also as a wellbeing coach. And that's been really exciting for me. Um, If I look back now, I could question whether it was the right time to do it. But is there ever really a right time? Um, It just means that my days start super early and I get a couple of hours of study in before my daughter wakes up. Long term, I want to be able to you know, I have my own business, what that looks like, I'm not quite sure. I have a broad range of skills and I need, again, need to be able to identify what am I going to want to do for the next 20, 30, 40 odd years of my life. But what's also going to give me the greatest flexibility to be able to be a present mother for my daughter and to be available for her, as she starts school and she starts attending, you know, dance classes or sporting events and she needs help with her homework. So for me, my mindset has shifted away from, you know, the, you know making big money, which is what I did in my, in my 20s. My focus was, okay, how much money can I make and how quickly can I make it to be able to buy the car that I want and buy the house that I want? You know, it, finances are still important, don't get me wrong, but I need to be able to find that balance of you know, making good money but also being able to um, be present and available for Frankie. So it's a bit of a watch this space for me. Um, I'm planning to wrap up all my studies by October. Um, I start back at work in October and that's going to, like I mentioned earlier, it's going to be an interesting time. A lot of my clients have gone through the financial burden of, the COVID-19 pandemic and have had to reshape their business and are now having to redesign their business plans. I'm excited to be involved in that again. Um, And I'm also a little bit nervous too at what I'm coming back to.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, it sounds like, well, it doesn't sound like, I know that you're a person that thrives under pressure. You like a challenge and that would be a challenge. It's a challenging environment and COVID-19 being a Black Swan event, we could talk for hours, but I, <laughs> I reckon we should probably <laughs> wrap it up. So thank you for coming on, by the way.
1: Thank you, Troy. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. I was, you know, very excited at the opportunity to join you today. Um, I listened to the podcasts and think that it's so wonderful to hear the opinions of many female athletes in our industry. Uh, at the same time, you know, providing a bit of entertainment value as well, I, I haven't Finished a podcast and thought, oh, wow, that was really boring. I've, I find value in all the podcasts and testament to you for raising a number of tof- topics that people just aren't brave enough to raise and to discuss. And you might get your hands slapped here and there <laughs> for <laughs> doing so. But I think that's what makes you such a likeable person and some someone that people do trust and can turn to is because you are willing to discuss and you are willing to disclose and share information that others may not necessarily be um, prepared to do so
0: i really appreciate that em i'm gonna have to have you on again and i want to discuss some world events and blow people's minds but we won't get into a debate otherwise um
1: (laughs) we're gonna be here till till midnight
0: (laughs) that's another episode done if anyone has any questions about this podcast please feel free to send me a direct message on instagram for those who don't follow me you can follow me at troy j thornton If you like this podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it. You could share it. And Em, what's your Instagram handle? So are people allowed to reach out to you for judging advice? Is that a thing?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, The the IFBB website does have the instructions for the um, correct procedure to be followed to be able to get formal feedback on the day. And it is, again, um, I point out that Michael puts in a lot of effort in consolidating each um feedback form from the judges and he would be the best person to reach out to if you want something that takes into account all the opinions but i'm more than happy to have a conversation or to share messages back and forth with athletes who are looking for a little bit of a direction or looking for some advice so um yeah um e-m-z-i-l-i-c is my instagram
0: beautiful all right, i'll um i'll tag you anyway so though, um thank you for everyone for listening and um until next time peace